0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. and My guest this week is the writer, editor, critic, academic and a Spectator alumnus, former foreign editor Ian Baruma, whose new book is The Collaborators, Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II. Now Ian, if I can start by asking an obvious question, there were a lot of stories of deception and survival in World War II. What was it that made you choose these three
1: and who are they? Well, I knew about two of them, actually, all three of them. I've, I've known, known about them for quite a long time. One is very, very well known in Holland, I mean, a notorious figure who was the, the, the Hasidic con man, Weinreb. The other one is equally legendary, um, Kawashima Yoshiko, legendary in China and even more so in Japan. So I knew her story, and there are films about her and novels and so on. And Himmler's masser, I knew about because, I mean, he's another fam- well-known figure. In fact, Woody Harrelson is making a movie about him at the moment, playing him as a hero and not as a as a fraud. And I knew about him because Hugh Trevor Roper, the historian, put me onto him uh, years ago. And so they were colorful characters. And I've always been this interested- This is Felix Kirsten, in, we should say. Felix, Felix Kirsten, Kirsten. Yeah. And I've always been interested in the question of collaboration because when I grew up in Holland, which had been occupied by the Nazis, of course. We really still grew up in the, in the 50s and 60s with a very f- firm idea of who was bu- good and who was bad, and these were, this was an absolute moral yardstick. And I've always been more, more interested, in the way, in the temptace- temptations of sin than in heroics. And so I'd been playing with the idea of doing something on collaborators for a while, and these were particularly colourful, characters but yes you're right I mean I could have picked probably from a rich array of figures like this.
0: And the way you've chosen to structure the book is you could have done maybe more easily as a straightforward a a book in three chunks. Yes. Telling each of their stories chronologically and then you know top and tailing it. You've instead done something Sort of more complex. Yes. And you've told the stories absolutely alongside each other chronologically. What was it that made you want to do that?
1: Well, because the three characters, of course, didn't know one another. Um, In some ways, in many ways, they don't have very much in common. And I wanted to draw out thematic parallels and why it sort of made sense to have these three people. And I think it would have been harder if it had simply been a triptych... Because then it would have been three separate stories that happened to take place in the same, more or less, in the same time, and in this way you sort of—it's more like what it was really like at the time, where there was a world war and there were these all these sort of hidden and sometimes not so hidden connections and threads and so on, so that you don't make them seem less separate. Well, something that's very striking in in right at the beginning in that particular
0: method of portrayal is that all three of them seem to start from you know even from childhood and their early lives in this very very sort of nationally and in in identity terms they were kind of confused from the out weren't they? Yes
1: which is another reason I was interested in these people um, coming from a mixed background myself and they were all children of collapsing collapsed empires which, of course, also set the scene for the two world wars. I mean, one, Kawashima Yoshiko, or that was her Japanese name in, it, in any case, grew up, she was still a small child, I think, but um, when the Qing dynasty collapsed in China, uh, Felix Kirsten came of age when the empires were collapsing uh, because of World War I. And, um, and he was in Estonia to stop. He them, was in Estonia. It, yeah. And so was um, Weinreb, who was born in Wov, which was then part of Poland, now, of course, Lviv in the Ukraine. And the same thing. I mean, they had to escape in World War I and from pogroms and that kind of thing. And so they were all, they all grew up, I mean, one in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, one in the Qing Dynasty, the Chinese Empire, and one in the Russian Empire. And so they were all adrift, as so many Europeans were. Yeah. Uh-
0: can we start by this extraordinary story of Yushiko? Her father, her biological father, because well, she acquired mm-hmm. another one, was this kind of extraordinary, real Qing dynasty Chinese aristocrat, wasn't he? I and mean, he kind of, sort of, almost Louis Fourteenth type. Yes. Personal circumstances.
1: How did that change? And what? Well, the Qing dynasty was was, was not a Han Chinese dynasty. They were Manchus who came from the north, from what used to be known as Manchuria, and had their own language, their own writing system, and, and so on. And so it wasn't simply a, a social aristocracy. It was an ethnic one, much resented by the Han Chinese. So part of the revolution against the Qing was also a revolution of the Han against the, the dreaded Manchus. And they lost... Everything. I mean, they lost not only their palace in Beijing and all that, but they but they lost their. They became déclassé. They lost their status, and so many of those people uh, dreamt of a revival of the Qing dynasty. And one of the reasons some of them collaborated with the Japanese is that they thought that with Japanese help they could do so, and because n- the nationalists in China. Um, uh, led by Chiang uh, Kai shek, the Generalissimo, that was their common enemy. And um, again, it was an absurd dream, but uh, there were many absurd dreams in those days.
0: And so, as a little girl, she's physically transplanted from this gigantic palace in Beijing to Port Arthur, this little peninsula sort of land whose Chinese and Japanese names now, forgive me, Lu Xun. Lu Xun. Yeah, the uh, Jun. And what's the situation? There. How does she acquire this second father and become involved with, if you like, the Japanese? Well, the,
1: the Chinese continent was was a kind of playground in in the early twentieth century for Japanese adventurers. They were known as as uh, as ronin after the sort of masterless samurai of the of the eighteenth and nineteenth century. And these were often di- rather disreputable figures, often very right wing. And um, one of them was this man called Kawashima, and he got to know Yoshiko's father in Peking during the siege of Peking after the Boxer Uprising in nineteen hundred, and became friends. And it's a bit murky how he ended up adopting her. Uh, there were strange financial dealings, there were there was probably there was some political negotiation. In any case it, it was a kind of liaison between a declasse Manchu aristocrat dreaming of the revival of the Qing and semi-fascist Japanese adventurer on the mainland and the young girl the child uh, Yoshiko was sort of handed to this adventurer as in the words of her real father a, a, a toy and so she went to Japan he
0: had toys to spare
1: as well didn't he had you? toys to spare to he had many many action. he had many concubines and and dozens of children And so she ended up in Japan being raised by this ultra-nationalist, surrounded by all kinds of rather thuggish members of ultra-nationalist groups in Japan who were semi-criminal, but also revolutionaries. And so she grew up in that sort of rather feverish atmosphere of of often violent revolutionary rhetoric and sometimes real violence.
0: And her comportment, even from quite young, I think in her early teenage years, she starts dressing as a boy, and yes. there's this myth that even then starts to creep around her, doesn't it, of Joan of Arc, oddly, a sort of Western yes. myth.
1: Well, again, I mean, she, she grew up in a world of fantasy, I mean, the revival of the Qing, the, the Japanese imperial fantasies, uh, and so on, and she was, uh, didn't quite know who she was, like many teenagers, but in her case, a bit more ac- acute. And she did dream of being the, the sort of Oriental Joan of Arc and who would lead her, the Munchus, back to their former glory and all that. There were also, I think, unfortunate encounters with some of these thuggish young men around her uh, foster father. And she and there may have been, you know, um, things that in those days were not yet called transgender and non-binary and all that kind of thing. And that may have played a role as well, even though they didn't have the jargon Yes, you don't
0: call her they. I think they said call, nobody yet. called her
1: they. And so she did, after one unfortunate encounter with, with, with a young man, uh, decided that she really didn't want to be um, a, a, a young woman anymore. Um, she wanted to be a man. And um, whether she really wanted to be a man in the sense of, of people who, who want to change their sex, not entirely clear. Uh, she certainly wanted to dress up as a man, but didn't always uh So one will never know, but she did dress up in in male uniforms and that kind of thing and you,
0: there's a sense in in the way you describe it that what she wanted certainly the aspect of maleness she covered most of all was agency and there is this sort of myth that grows up around her very fast that she you know she's at the center of things that she's you know she's sort of involved in the Shanghai incident that you know helps to kick off that great conflict and in the invasion of Manchuria. How much agency do you judge her as having really had once you peel away well, all the layers? Well, we'll
1: never really know. Like a lot of these mythical figures who... And she was a great practitioner of, of legend management. I mean, she, she loved creating myths around herself, encouraged by the Japanese, who liked the idea of a Manchu princess being on their side. And so this great myth was created through fictional accounts of her life, largely fictional pieces of reportage about the war in Manchuria in which she supposedly played a, a great part as the, the sort of Joan of Arc leading her own private army and so on and so forth. And she cooperated in all that. I think she liked having a legend and the Jap- it suited the Japanese. Now, to find out exactly what she did, when, where, and so on, is a little bit of a mystery. Um, you can't, for sure. Nor did it... Re- it didn't really... I was interested in how how people tell stories about themselves and, and and so on more than that I wanted to set out as a kind of scientist who wanted to sort of go through all the archives as though there was some nugget of truth to be found there I I preferred to leave it a little bit mysterious yeah At this
0: business you say this the, the common enemy was Chiang Kai-shek and, and the Chinese Nationalists, but the actual was a kind of funny little corner of history which is the outcome of this shared endeavor where you know it's very clear that actually what the Manchu Chinese and the Japanese nationalists wanted was was very different. Can you just explain a bit about the founding of Manchuoko and what what role, if any, yoshiko well, had in that the, the,
1: the, 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 you're absolutely right, of course the, the Japanese wanted to dominate Asia, the Manchus wanted a revival of the Qing. But one of the central elements of Japanese propaganda was, on the one hand, this idea of pan-Asianism, that Asia should be restored to the Asians and the Japanese, as the most modern Asian nation, would liberate other Asians from Western colonial uh, domination. So that was something that appealed to a lot of Asians. In, in the Before the war, I mean, there was a lot of Indian support. I mean, Rabindranath Tagore supported it, not once he saw the nature of Japanese militarism, he he dropped it very quickly, but the idea of Pan-Asianism was was very attractive. And so whatever they did, it had to be done in the name of anti-imperialism, meaning anti-Western imperialism in those days, of course. And so Manchukuo was a kind of fiction. It was supposedly um, a perfectly modern, independent Asian nation state where all races, the Manchus, the Chinese, the Koreans, the Japanese... Uh, it's essentially be, carved
0: out of Manchuria and bits of Mongolia yes, by the Japanese. And, by and, and
1: they would all be treated equally, unlike Western racism and that kind of thing. But it was a fiction. It was a Japanese puppet state with a Chinese government who had no power at all. After Behind every chair uh, of a Chinese functionary, there was a so-called Japanese advisor who were members of the, 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 the imperial army. And they had the last... Qing Dynasty emperor, who was a boy when the revolution happened in nineteen eleven, um, who was the, made into the emperor of Manchukuo, and it was all Gilbert and Sullivan, really, but it appealed to a lot of people, including I mean the Peter Fleming, Ian Fleming's brother went there, he he found it very boring Manchukuo, but he wasn't particularly dismissive of what the Japanese were doing because it was very modern. They had the fastest railway trains and they, they had the film studios and and so on. And a lot of British journalists and travellers who went there thought that the Japanese were doing a wonderful job. But it was a fiction and certainly the races were not treated equally. Was it a
0: fiction that Yoshiko believed in, do you think?
1: Oh, that's so hard to know. What people really believe... Um, how do we know? I mean, we don't know with our own politicians exactly what they really believe. They they say they believe things, but who knows? I think she probably, like a lot of people in Asia at the time, she did certainly believe that it was a worthy goal to liberate Asia. Um, it was a worthy goal in a way. Um, There's something a lot to be said for it. Whether she really believed in in Manchukuo and that it was an independent state, no, I'm sure she knew better. And as the war went on, she began to say so too, which was not well received by her (laughs) Japanese masters. No, Well, to jump across to one of your
0: other characters, you know, you talk about fantasy and and imagination. You know, the king of this was Weinreb. Can you tell me a bit about... Him and his role, because of all the yes. the three here, he's the one who almost feels to me like the, the darkest. Of and them. the most sinister, yes. Yeah.
1: I mean, Weiner Friedrich Weinreb uh, was born in, in what is now Luiv, in an assimilated German-speaking Jewish family. Um, they were not religious. They fled at the beginning of World War One, went to Vienna, were in straitened circumstances, and then ended up in this seaside resort next to The Hague in Holland. As a form of rebellion against his parents and and his milieu, really, he became ultra-Orthodox and a Hasidic Jew, and later in life became a kind of guru who used Kabbalistic, um, used the Kabbalah to find the true meaning of life in the Bible and so on, and had disciples around him who were mostly um, wealthy Gentile ladies. But in any case, he always thought he was smarter than everybody else, and a fantasist. And so um, when Holland was occupied by the Germans, he started to devise lists. And if you, if you got onto his list as a persecuted Jew in exchange for money, he's promised a train to safety in Portugal or, or Spain or Switzerland. And the list was backed by a German general of the Wehrmacht called General von Schumann. Now, both the lists and the general were completely made up. As were the uh, trains. I'm sorry? As were the trains. Yes, as were the trains. It was all a complete fantasy, but it made him feel powerful. It made him feel that he, was, uh, that he had connections. It made him into a big man, which is uh, the other thing that perhaps all three of these characters have in common, that they used the, the weirdness of their time not only to become self-invented characters, but to become important people. Which, in normal circumstances, fantasies like this don't really. But I mean, um, I'm interested. You say that because you say that you know they, they
0: want to make himself feel important. That that almost seems to be primary. I mean, you know, rather than the sort of Occam's razor version of it, which is that he simply wanted to steal as much money from Jews doomed to the camps as he possibly could.
1: Uh, I mean, yes, it more than so. just
0: a get-rich scheme.
1: No, I, I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, the whole the, the thing about dictatorships and and foreign occupation. Nazi Germany is a prime example of this, or in some ways, the United States under Donald Trump. It gives an opportunity to all kinds of chances, failed novelists, second-rate or third-rate intellectuals, failed politicians, doctors who have been crossed off, you know, some kind of offense or misdemeanor can no longer practice and so on. these people can suddenly come up and become you know important people and and failed writers become the head of the you know the culture chamber and that kind of thing and I think that's a very important aspect of collaboration and Weinreb absolutely although he of course he didn't become a big man in the Nazi administration how could he? he was a Jew with a beard and he would have been murdered and um, he was lucky to escape with his life, really. But it did allow him, indeed, as the kind of pretended saviour to be an important person in his own eyes, but also in those of many others.
0: There's also the suggestion that, I mean, really kind of grisly stuff, but that there was a sort of sexual thing he was Yes, he, he.
1: he Yes, one, one of the things he pretended was that he was a medical doctor, and he, an, he, had, he had a forged letter that he'd finished his medical studies in the University in Vienna, which was, again, a complete fantasy. He wrote the letter himself. I mean, it was all nonsense. But he set himself up as an examiner, especially of younger women who got on the list to go on these imaginary, imaginary trains to safety. And, um, you know, he prodded them in, in various places and so on, and did this also for the rest of his life. I mean, some of his devotees later were subjected to his medical examinations, but this was never used in the post-war trials against him. It, it 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 was a factor when in the, I think in the 50s, he finally had to flee Holland because people who'd been at his tender mercy um, uh, started to sue him, but he was tried just after the war for being a fraud and a traitor, but not for being uh a fake doctor. Yes, there is an extraordinary way in which he gets
0: caught up in his own story, in that it's, it's precisely the elaborate idea about this Schumann, and it's so persuasive. That's kind of what does for him when he gets picked up by the SD, isn't it?
1: Yes. Well, the SD... Th- th- w- one thing in the background of this story is that there was a, a great rivalry between the SS and the German army. They didn't trust each other. And so... When Kersten was arrested, quite why is not entirely clear. Why Sorry, he was Weinreb. Sorry, Weinreb. Why he was arrested the first time is not entirely clear. But anyway, he was. And um, he then claimed that this General von Schumann was... that he'd made it up, and so he wasn't really guilty and so on. And the SS uh, interrogator then wouldn't believe him. And because they assu- immediately assumed that uh, there was a Wehrmacht general because they couldn't be trusted who was fleecing Jews and so on. Not that they were against fleecing Jews, but the SS wanted to do that and not Wehrmacht people, not as freelancers. And then Weinrep realized that he probably could use this as a ruse and was released on the understanding that he would help the SS to track down this wicked general and, uh, and his supporters. And that worked for a while until that fell through as well. But yes. At
0: this point, it takes a darker term because the list becomes his means of sort of buying himself out, doesn't yes. it? Yes. He, and, he and essentially the, just sends those people to their deaths by dobbing uh, them in.
1: He certainly did, did some of that. Also, while in prison, uh, he pretended to be a resistance fighter to people who were put in his cell and managed to get all kinds of information that the Germans then could use. So he shopped quite a few people, probably. Again, this came up in his trials. It's still contested. But that he did portray people is, is, is certain. And the Germans, after his second arrest, um, again allowed him to get out of jail or later a concentration camp on the understanding that he would help them to track down the last Jews in hiding.
0: Even though there weren't any at that stage? Very few. <laughs> yeah.
1: There were. But, uh, but they were wise enough at that stage of the war not to sign up to some ridiculous scheme.
0: Yeah. Now, something that goes through, I think, it's a really interesting theme of the book, is this idea, and it particularly bears on on your third character, that I think, as you say, of Reinreb, he recognised that a rational response to a situation in which everything's narrative is to is to lie, is to you know that that fantasy wasn't confined to these people; it was it was the sort of air that that everybody breathed.
1: Absolutely, because well, the Third Reich itself, but like any dictatorship. And, and certainly in an occupied country, I mean, everything is propaganda. There is no truth, and also there's no rule of law, of course. And one of the things, one of the reasons why a larger percentage of the Dutch Jewish population ended up being murdered than any other country in Western Europe, I mean, there are various possible reasons for it. One of them is that people, Holland had been a very bourgeois and settled society, really since the Napoleonic invasion. And there was no real tradition of rebellion against authority, so even the rabbis and and the leaders of the Jewish community, when people began to be arrested and so on, told their brethren in Amsterdam and elsewhere that you know as long as they cooperated with the right authorities, you know perhaps things wouldn't be so bad, and you know breaking the law was was always a bad thing, and so on and so forth. Weinreb was absolutely right when he said there is no such thing as law anymore, or truth. And you break the law, you lie, whatever, you, whatever it takes to survive. And the rest is a mugs game. And of course, you know, he was, he was absolutely accurate about that. Felix Kirsten, your third,
0: third figure, he's a masseur.
1: Yes, he, <laughs> he was a, a, a Baltic German... Um, who took on Finnish nationality. Again, almost everything you read about him and what he said about himself has to be taken with a pinch of salt. But he fought in World War I in some capacity in the German army and ended up a, 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 in a hospital in Helsinki and discovered that he, he had a talent for massage. Ended up in Berlin in the 20s. And Berlin was a great place then for self sort of wellness cures and yoga and all kinds of mumbo jumbo that is quite fa- come quite fashionable the Nazis fashionable. were very Again, keen on all this mumbo jumbo the Nazis they? were great believers in it himmler himself apparently you know had the, uh, the bhagavad gita in his pocket and believed had, and was interested in hinduism well, so That's a that so funny little thread of a kind of rivalry with Kirsten
0: as the great master, mystic masseur yes. and you know himmler's personal astrologer and they were yes. kind of knocking and, on together and, well, <laughs> well this was
1: something that that Hugh Trevor-Roper actually told me about, I mean, that because he interviewed Hitler's doctor and others, there was in these crazy kind of Nazi courts, there was always a rivalry between the doctors and the, and the soothsayers and the astrologers and so on, because these Nazi leaders started to to, to depend on these people. But in any case, so in the 20s, he built up a a clientele of rich and well-connected German industrialists, aristocrats all over Europe and so on. Himmler had unbearable stomach pains, which Mao's doctor, Mao Zedong's doctor... Liger Sway, in his wonderful book, uh, described as the communist disease. Of course, it's not a communist disease. It's a disease that's very common in despotic courts, where everybody's frightened of being knifed. And so then you develop all these psychosomatic complaints, which Himmler suffered from. And Kersten was the only one who knew how to soothe his pain. And so he was taken on in his, as his personal masseur, according to Kerstin after the war, rather against his will and so on, much to be doubted, like Weinreb, like uh, Yoshiko, he wanted to be a fixer, an important figure, a man who had the ear of, of powerful people, and so on and so
0: forth. Now, the claims that he made for what he achieved, always by saying, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll sort your stomach pains out if you do me this one favour. He saved the entire population of the Netherlands yeah. from a death march. He saved Finland, and he, he claimed at least to have saved an enormous number of Jews from the camps towards the end of the war. Is there truth in any of
1: that? There is, there is a little bit of truth in some of it. Much of this, of course, was written after the war. But he, he claims that in exchange for relieving Himmler's pain, he could sort of present the head of the SS with a little list of people he wanted to have released from the camps. Some of that may have happened. Probably many of them were former clients and that kind of thing. But nothing of this kind really happened until the end of the war. Yes, it, he claimed that he'd saved the entire Dutch population from being deported to Poland, but that was very convincingly debunked by an, a historian after the war. I mean, it certainly wasn't true. But well, this goes back to his pre-war life. One of his most powerful connections was with the Dutch royal family, and through them he got all kinds of powerful clients in, in Holland. So after the war, when he wanted to become a masser of the rich and famous as it were again um, having been Him- Himmler's masseur was not the best calling card so in order to ingratiate himself with the dutch and others he made up those kind of stories that that he you know saved the entire population and all that but there was some truth that in the end of the war Himmler when he knew that the third reich was going under was trying through emissaries to make a deal with the Allies, that they would join him as the leader of Germany against the Bolsheviks and and the Russian hordes, and was perfectly prepared at that stage. I mean, we're talking now about late 1944, to release some Jews from camps in exchange for a deal like that. And Kerstin played some kind of role as a middleman, he was by then, Kerstin also saw the end coming, he was by then spending a lot of time in Stockholm. And the World Jewish Congress saw possibilities of getting people released by perhaps negotiating with Himmler. And he was, he was the sort of go-between. And the the grotesque meeting that took place at, at Kersten's country house outside Berlin in Brandenburg, Um, In early 1945, when the war was still going on and Berlin was being bombed every night and day and so on, Kerstin flew to Germany from Stockholm with the Swedish representative of the World Jewish Congress, were met by SS officers at the airport who all went Sieg Heil, whereupon the Jewish representative doffed his hat and said, good evening, gentlemen. (laughs) They ended up in Kerstin's country house and Himmler came late at night and uttered the immortal words as he stuck out his hand to shake that of I can't remember his name now but the, the Jewish representative, and said, "Perhaps it's time that our peoples buried the hatchet." <laughs> and some people were indeed released as a consequence of these negotiations. Now, Count Volker Bernadotti, who acted for the Swedish government and was later assassinated in Jerusalem by, I think the Stern gang, wasn't by it? the Stern yeah. Gang also played a big role. And so who did exactly what? Not so clear. But after the war, Kerstin actually forged a letter supposedly written by Bernadotte to Himmler with all kinds of very disreputable things. So the rivalry went on and the stories got taller. Yeah.
0: Now, Kirsten also attracts, bizarrely, a Jewish biographer who buys everything, doesn't yes. he?
1: This is one of the great mysteries. Joseph Kessel wrote a book about Kerstin, which is still in print in France and has been reissued Kessel Also known as
0: the Belle de Jour guy, extraordinarily.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Been reissued, and I think there's a new English translation just coming out as well. And he was actually a remarkable figure. Not only did he write Belle de Jour, but he was in the French Resistance and was in London during the war and wrote an account of it, which was published in Cyril Connolly's Horizon at the time which became the one of the great French films about the occupation by Jean-Pierre Melville called The Army of Shadows. So he was a remarkable man, must have been pretty hard-nosed, but met Keston, was charmed by him, and clearly saw a great story there as a fellow resistance hero, and so wrote this account, which is a complete hagiography. I mean, even though he wrote it before Keston was dead, but no, no, probably, maybe not, I don't know. But in any case, it's, it's, it's utterly inaccurate. It's a gripping story. But it's the one that still probably will be believed more than my book. Well, maybe Woody Harrelson in, with in Woody his fat is going to be... bought the yeah. rights to that book <laughs> <laughs> and is doing
0: a movie. You Lord. Well, you could do a tour debunking the movie. Um, there's also... Kirsten maintains that, as does, I think, Fenreb right up until the end of the war, they had no idea about what was going on in the camps...
1: Yes, I mean, this is, of course, nonsense. Weinrepp, yeah, Weinrepp claims that he only knew right at the end of the war, which is also very unlikely. I mean, Anne Frank, a, a teenage girl locked up in an attic, writes about the gas chambers in her diary because she heard it on the BBC. And so th- it's very hard to believe that um, Kerstin wouldn't have heard similar rumours. But in any case, he, he claims that he didn't realise until the end of the war. Kerstin, I think, goes further and says he didn't really know until, yeah, also very late in the war, but he doesn't talk, talk about gas chambers, but, but the horrors in the concentration camps. This is, uh, of, of course, nonsense. I mean, there was. lovely point that he says, you know,
0: ordinary Germans just didn't know. And you say, well, ordinary Germans weren't rocketing around the country in Himmler's uh, private
1: trade. Exactly. But, and at the time that the worst massacres were taking place in Lithuania and Poland and, and, and Ukraine and so on, and he was with Himmler all the time. Uh, so, uh, yes, it's it's utter nonsense. And what was happening in the camps, most Germans knew about, not the gas chambers, because that, of course, came later, but they knew about it because it was used in, in horror propaganda or, or terror propaganda in the 30s already. You know, if you don't behave, that's where you'll end up and, you know, this could happen to you. So people did know. I mean, Dachau was known to Germans to be a, a horrific place. And so... That was completely disingenuous.
0: There is also I mean, a sense of, kind of Kirsten's you know, love of luxury and cunning. There's a lovely story told about Himmler and the ham. We,
1: yes, well, the ham, I don't ham, know how was, true ham was, was rationed, and you were not allowed to sort of eat your own ham, as it were, and Kirsten had pigs at his country estate. And these pigs were slaughtered for Kirsten's own delight, and he claims that he brought a, a big slab of ham to Himmler's office and Himmler like Hitler was very fond of animals I mean which is why he hated hunting and shooting because he thought that you know the idea of of shooting innocent creatures was abhorrent to this fastidious man who fastidious was uh, probably a, 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 yeah responsible for millions and billions of people being murdered in horrible ways so Kerstin presented his boss with this piece of meat and Himmler made an exception and had a, had a slice. And then Kerstin says, you know that we've been eating something that's rationed. And then Himmler supposedly went white and was horrified. And then Kerstin could use this to blackmail him to release more people, which is a, such an unlikely story that it's extraordinary that Kessel would even mention it. But- he would have kept
0: Kerstin kept in sausages anyway. Now, one of the things that was really interesting in is... is- as you say, the shape of the stories and the shape of these myths. Now, how did the post-war atmospheres in these different countries, particularly in Holland, I mean, there's, there's you talk, I mean, there's, which shows how live this is. These personal connections keep drifting in. I mean, you had a schoolyard bully when you were in primary school who turns out to be the grandson of one of the figures. There's a doctor who turned out to be a great friend no, of no, your grandfather. I
1: think he was the, the, either the son or the grandson of a man who had an auction house for fine art in The Hague. And Kerstin bought a lot of paintings from him. And he, one of his claims was that he managed to rescue this man from the Gestapo because he'd been a resistance fighter. Well, far from being a resistance fighter, he was convicted after the war for having sold looted Jewish art. So that was one thing. But if you, but your
0: grandfather's great friend was a my grandfather who was
1: British and he was a British paediatrician, and his great friend was a a Jewish paediatrician in Holland. Well, yes, I mean that's another extraordinary story of the atmosphere of absurdity and make believe in in a Nazi ruled country. That there was the the main concentration camp in Holland, which is near the Dutch border, and it's where all the Jews were taken before being shipped off in cattle trains to the death camps, a place called Westerbork. And the commandant of Westerbork was an SS officer who fancied... He was very handsome, and some of the young women in the camp sort of fell in love with him. And he fancied himself as one of those gentlemen of the SS who never screamed at people. He was always ready with a smile as people were being pushed into the cattle cars. And he loved children. He prided himself on being a great lover of children and babies and so on. And one day an emaciated and exhausted mother appeared at the camp and she was sent off to Auschwitz immediately. But the baby, only a few months old, was still there. And the commandant insisted that the baby should be kept alive. And so a well-known pediatrician was brought in from another camp called Van Krevel. And not only that, but uh, the commandant would supply his own cognac, which the doctor said was necessary for some kind of medication to bring the baby back to life. And um, everybody was very interested in this case. And lo and behold, after a month or so, the baby was fully healthy again, at which point the commandant decided now the baby was ready to be shipped off to Auschwitz. And, uh, And this doctor was a very close personal friend of my grandfather's which I only realised when I read that. I, I knew my grandfather always went to see a man called von Kravel. I'd never put two and two together Extraordinary And Holland's post-war
0: reckoning was one that was very sort of I mean not much happened at first and then it was very dramatic wasn't it?
1: Well, like in, in all countries that, that had been occupied, I mean, in France it took even longer because they had a more complicated history of collaboration. When I grew up at, at primary school, every teacher had been a resistance hero and uh, and we knew that we couldn't buy sweets in a certain tobacconist because the woman working there had had a German boyfriend and that kind of thing. So it was all very crystal clear, and most people had been resistors, and everybody had been anti-Nazi and so on. In the 60s, this began to be questioned and people began to dig a bit di- deeper and it's also where when the first books really started to appear about the holocaust in holland and, and why so many jews had been deported how it happened etc cetera, etc cetera. and at the exactly the same time and this is also true in france it's also true in italy it's also true in japan where the student movement and the student protest movement uh, against the you know quote unquote the establishment was very much phenomenon of also reckoning with the war. So the parents who'd looked the other way or were on the wrong side and so on, this had to be made up for by the student rebels of the 60s who would be resistors. So, you know, you've got German people on the far left who suddenly, um, you know, took, t- took up the Palestinian cause as their great feat of resistance. And in Holland, at Weinreb... Who, was or, who already tried to make himself out to be the sort of, the, as, he, as, as, as his supporters at the time put it, the Dutch Dreyfus, suddenly became a kind of culture counterculture hero. And the student, not all students, but the, the sort of young rebel movement of the time took him up as a man who'd sort of... Resisted the establishment by seeming to play their game and undermining it, etc., etc. And then he became really a figure and a hotly contested figure that the left, on the whole, supported him and the conservatives did not. And that went on for years and years. It's kind of extraordinary and
0: perhaps telling that the two male protagonists in your book, post war, I mean, you know, they're thoroughly debunked here, but They're both more or less nominated for the Nobel Prize by a number of well-wishers. But Yoshiko gets a bullet in the back of the head, doesn't she?
1: Yes, she does. She was arrested after the war by the Chinese nationalist government, which was then still in power, as a traitor. But what was odd about the trial, uh, or there were two trials, is that they used as evidence things that had been made up in her legend. And so they claimed that, that that there had been a sort of... Well, they, they took elements from a, a fiction, a feature film that had made, been made about her, supposedly. And there was a fictionalized biography, and they took evidence from that, which was very strange. But it, the fact that she suffered a fate that the two men didn't, I mean, there are various reasons for it. But one reason is that w- that women in particular, again, this is true of all former countries that had been o- under occupation, were the first victims, really, of vengeance. And one of the reasons, I think, is that being defeated in war, let alone being occupied, is extremely humiliating, especially in- to the men. And, and this was, course of course, a time that society was still completely dominated by men. And the men were very demoralized in France, in in Holland, in Belgium and elsewhere after the war. And the women, who'd often played some role in the resistance, but also had used the fact that there was a large number of young German men and so on, get rid of authoritarian fathers, get out of horrible marriages and that kind of thing. The women were riding rather high. And there were all these occupation troops who were better fed, better dressed, had chewing gum and silk stockings and money and so on added to the humiliation of the men in occupied countries. And, and the same was true in Japan. And so their anger, I think, about this found its expression in targeting women who'd had relationships with the occupation forces before anybody else really got, got it in the neck. And people who'd done far worse things often went scot-free. Yes, and, I think you
0: described the, the sort of number one Japanese war criminal. I was getting, what,
1: two three months or three years? Well, or something. One, of the, one of the top Japanese generals in China, who, who had been responsible for enormous numbers of deaths and was very cruel, went to military academy with Chiang Kai-shek, who was the head of the nationalist government. And the civil war with the communists, of course, began very, almost as soon as the war was over. And so the nationalists under, Zheng, under Jiang wanted Japanese military advisers so real war criminals um, were often let off with no punishment at all, and became advisers to the new Chinese government, and that's, that that did indeed happen. And you know, a fantasist like Yoshiko, who really had, probably had no, very little blood on their hands, if any, was severely punished. I mean, got the most severe punishment, a bullet in the neck, in the back of the head because it was, in some ways, she wasn't necessary, and it was symbolic, too. But
0: You I'd mean, I like to know how, how it all resonates today, because you suggest it does. I mean, Yoshiko, for instance, you say she's actually been completely
1: rehabilitated,
0: that she's got this mythic status in, in modern Japan.
1: Yes, I mean, no, there is no nostalgia for the Japanese Empire in Japan anymore, and, and no real nostalgia for Manchukuo either. But the idea that th- th- there was this sort of glamorous Chinese princess who was on the Japanese side uh, still has a certain appeal. And she's become a kind of a figure in, in, in Japanese manga and in, in comic strips as, as a crossdresser and uh, a trance a heroine or hero. I don't know how you, <laughs> what the word would be. So, yes, she still plays. There is still that. In in Holland, as I said, Weinreb played a role in the student movement, the protest movement of the, of the 60s, the counterculture. Kersten, I think, one reason he almost ended up with the Nobel Prize is that he he used his connections with German industrialists and so on, the elite. This is perhaps also where Hugh Trevoroper Roper comes in, who was a great supporter of Kersten, in that... A lot of industrialists and, and, and important people in Germany, bankers, financiers, and so on, were necessary to build West Germany up again as a, as a staunch ally in the Cold War. And many of them had not really been Nazis, but they'd been opportunists, and they did very well out of the Third Reich. And anything that helped in some ways to lessen their responsibility was probably well received in certain circles. And Kersten, I think, used that uh, to his advantage.
0: Now, you had, I so say four or five years ago, your own quite bruising experience with competing narratives when you left the New York Review of Books after publishing, as I understand as a sort of self-defence by somebody who'd been, you know, sort of held up or called out by the Me Too movement. Was that experience something that informed your thinking in this book about how narratives compete and about how... Well, a little bit. I I I mean, mean, that
1: wasn't really about competing narratives. It it was about somebody. He was a Canadian, uh, sort of very well-known sort of radio host, disc jockey, and so on. And he was uh, sued by women accused of sexual abuse, and he was on trial. And for various reasons, he was not found guilty. And, but then was completely ostracized, lost his job, was beyond the pale. And my interest in the story was in the question of what happens, what kind of public punishment is there for people who cannot be legally punished and how long that should last, what we should think about it and so on. And the article he wrote, which not a great article, it wasn't so much a defense of uh, what he'd done to these women, it was more a description his description of what it had been like after the trial to live you know, in, under those circumstances. So there was that, but it wasn't so much the competing narratives that may have informed my interest in the story. It was more my awareness afterwards, after all that happened, of the cowardice of people who don't want to be tainted by it so the fact that and this certainly does not apply to the spectator at all but the fact that magazines I'd been writing for for a long time who you know think of themselves as very sort of liberal and woke and so on suddenly refused to have me write for them and there are some parallels perhaps between that kind of behavior and some of the things that you read about when it comes to the history of collaboration and, and war and occupation.
0: Ian Bruma. thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, um, don't, don't feel you have to review it. Um, and equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk.